0: welcome back to it here in apologetics is always brought to you by you with support on patreon.com today i'm joined by dr casey luskin um he got his phd in geology from the university of johannesburg uh he's also works at the discovery institute now as an associate director uh we're gonna be talking about all things intelligent design so i'm looking forward to this it should be a lot of fun casey welcome how are you doing thank you zach for having me on it's great to be with you yeah, I'm excited for this conversation. We're just gonna kind of be surveying the intelligent design movement and what's going on. Um, it's interesting because I ha- it's 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 something that's still alive and well, even though I think a lot of people may just dismiss it under the rug here. Um but before we get into like the specifics of the ID movement, can you talk a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Sure,
1: so um, I work at Discovery Institute, which is pretty much the largest intelligent design organization out there. We call ourselves a think tank, which means that we come up with great ideas that we hope will be uh, positive influences on the world and help to promote those ideas, fund research into those ideas, and get those ideas out there. Uh, Discovery Institute is well known for uh, its work on intelligent design, but it does a lot of other things, including work in foreign affairs, transportation, communications, uh, economics and many other uh, areas. So uh, we're quite a diverse organization and it's a lot of fun to work there. Um, As you said, I'm associate director at Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. That's the intelligent design program. I don't work with other programs that work on other topics, uh, some of which might have also been in the news a lot lately. Those are really outside the scope of what I do and not really. Uh, I don't really have any involvement there. But I do work uh, very much in the field of Intelligent Design. I've been involved with the Intelligent Design debate or issue for, let's say, probably 20 to 21 years now, maybe a little bit over that. So basically two decades. Um, so my background, as you said, I'm, I'm a PhD scientist. I just earned a PhD in geology from the University of Johannesburg uh, at the end of last year. I'm also an attorney. I got my um, a law degree from the University of San Diego, and I've been a California licensed attorney since 2005. And we were talking before uh, the show started, Zach, about what you want to do with your life. And, and I basically said, don't spend your life in school <laughs> like, like I did. Don't follow my path. Um, enjoy your life a little bit more. I mean, I do enjoy my life, but uh, mm-hmm. definitely I don't recommend spending your whole Life in school. Uh, uh, Although um, school is not all bad, but I I would say, you know, enjoy the real world.
0: Yeah, but you get so many letters at the end of your name, like BS, MS, PhD, JD, you know, you sound like a pretty smart guy. Um, So I guess that counts for something.
1: I I don't know. It depends on who you ask on that one, probably. Um, (laughs) I mean, I I will say this. Um, I mean, a PhD is a hard thing to do. No question about that. But after finishing my PhD, um, I've never been so impressed with the fact that there are many, many, many smart people out there that don't have PhDs. You do not have to have a PhD by any stretch of the imagination to know what you're talking about, to be able to articulate cogent arguments in a subject. And frankly, I think people with PhDs would do very well to listen to people Without PhDs more often. So I'm not a PhD snob, as some people uh, might be, where if you don't have those letters, then you're not worth listening to. I soundly reject that kind of reasoning. And I think that a lot of folks out there, for whatever reasons that don't have those letters after the last name, doesn't mean anything about whether they don't have good things to say and ought to be listened to.
0: Mm Yeah, it's a good word. Um, so I look forward to getting into some information. I welcome icy lemon, Susan, everyone else who's joining us. Um, she says tease some a bunch of letters, so maybe you understand that, Casey. Uh, I'm not a science person, so that's kind of over my head. Um, yeah, but uh, ju- with regards to just like some like background information, do you want to kind of give some like background on who you are? You obviously left the Discovery Institute for a while, and you're back um, with a newly earned PhD. So do you want to just give some background information? Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I started working
1: at Discovery Institute in 2005. It was my first job out of law school, actually. And I worked for the first five years at Discovery, um, primarily doing uh, public policy work, meaning that we would get contacted by school words, uh teachers, state legislators, local activists, parents, and students who would ask, how can we best teach the topic of evolution and origins in public schools? And so I would give advice and assistance to those who wanted to teach evolution more objectively than it's typically taught. Um, I went to public schools from kindergarten through the end of my master's degree. So I'm a product of public schools. I don't know what that says about whether I, I'm smart or not, but um, you know, I really experienced that very one-sided teaching of the pro-evolution only viewpoint throughout my entire public school experience. and. I feel that's very unfortunate because it deprives students of the opportunity to be exposed to all of the scientific evidence so they can make up their minds for themselves on where they want to stand on this issue. Um, For me personally, I'm not stressed about where people come down on the issue as much as I am that they have access to all the information and they can make up their minds in an informed manner. And when when scientific evidence is being censored from students, I think that's a real travesty of of education. So I worked again for the first five years, from about 2005, 2010, primarily doing that and also assisting scientists and educators and students who are being persecuted and discriminated against because of their support for intelligent design. Um, if any of your viewers have seen the documentary Expelled that came out in 2008 with Ben Stein, it tells the story of quite a few scientists who face discrimination because of their support for ID. And quite a few of the cases in that documentary I actually worked on. Those are my cases, or at least I was collaborating with other attorneys in those cases. And so I was very... Uh, Closely exposed to really a lot of the horrible and horrific things that scientists go through when they when it comes out that they are supportive of ID and the kind of um, negative career um, impacts that they have and the persecution that they experience. It's a very real phenomenon. I've seen quite a few very good people, quality scientists, quality people um, suffering because of this uh, intolerance and discrimination in, in academia. So, okay, then 2011. Um, I kind of switched my role at discovery to being research coordinator where, because I had a bachelor, I also had a bachelor's and a master's degree prior to, uh, going going to law school in Earth Sciences from UC San Diego, where I studied a lot of evolutionary biology. And so uh, at at both undergraduate and graduate level training and and evolutionary biology there. And so in 2011, I became research coordinator at Discovery, where I became more involved with helping to make sure that many of the scientists at Discovery Institute funds have the resources that they need to do to do do their research and scholarship on ID. Um, Then around 2015, uh, you know, there's really no other way to put it, I felt a call, I know I'm a Christian, I believe in God, and sometimes God sort of directs your path in life. And this was not something that I was expecting, but I, I felt a call to go to go back to school to get my PhD. And it, it was actually a, a lifelong goal that I'd had also to go and get my PhD in geology. My undergrad masters were in earth sciences and I always wanted to go back, but I kind of made peace with the idea that I was never gonna do it. Um, although it was something that I'd wanted to do, I just sort of like, you know, filed it away, mm-hmm. you know, you're you're young, Zach. So there's, from your perspective, you probably think you can do anything you want to do in life. And I hope you will. Um, but as you get a little bit older, you realize, you know what, you know, even if you're like Elon Musk, where you think you can like change the world and send people to Mars, I bet even he looks back on his life and says, you know, there's, there's some things in life I'm probably not just going to get to do. And at that point in life, I just sort of assumed that the PhD in geology was just something that my life had taken a different path. But surprisingly, um, I, again, I just felt that call. And so my wife and I Uh, Packed up our very comfortable, happy lives in Seattle at the end of 2015 and moved to South Africa, where I started a Ph.D. in geology at the University of Johannesburg at the beginning of 2016 and worked very hard on that Ph.D. for um, about four and a half, five years. Just finished it last November. Um, And uh, it's a whole long story. We basically had to flee South Africa in March of last year, Mm, right as the coronavirus hit. um, And we had to come home quite unexpectedly and urgently, or we were told we may not be able to come back. We could get stranded there indefinitely. So we came back, caught just about the last flight out of South Africa and into the U.S. before they shut down all international air traffic at the end of March 2020. Um, And we came back and were just completely shell-shocked and spent the first you know 4 to 6 months of the of the lockdown last year sort of rebuilding our lives we came back we didn't have cars we didn't have cell phones we didn't even have a costco card you know we didn't huh. have, we just came back we only had the suit the clothes in our suitcase and my laptop and my wife had her laptop we even had to leave our cat in south africa you know <laughs> we just we just got stranded basically and we got stuck here or not stuck we we came back to the us with almost nothing and so it was quite a hectic and, and difficult experience. I know everybody had a, a tough year of 2020, so I don't want to play my violin here. 2020 was rough for everyone, but I'll just say that, you know, you could, you could like subtract COVID out and 2020 would still have been the most hectic and difficult and chaotic year of our lives. But um, thank God we we're kind of back on our feet again, almost more or less now. I'm still catching up from last year, but at least, uh you know, I'm feeling more normal and human now. So anyway, that's, that's my life in a nutshell over the last, I don't know, <laughs> years. So
0: yeah, it sounds like you had a pretty eventful 2020 to say the least. Um, but talking about intelligent design now, could you talk about like what got you interested in like, kind of like studying and examining the ID movement?
1: Sure. So when I went to my, my undergraduate degree again was at UC San Diego and the, I was very interested in questions about origins and evolution. Uh, but I, you know, I'd studied it in, in, in high school biology, and you know, I had the opportunity to learn about it, but not nearly as much as I wanted to. So the very first course, my first lecture, my first day of college, was at in a class called History of the Earth and Evolution. Mm-hmm. And I got up early. It was an I'll never forget. It was an eight a.m. class. My very first lecture in college. Got up early, walked across the quad, sat down. I was ready to learn. And I it was great. I had many opportunities to learn about evolution at UC San Diego. It, it was a And it still is, I think, to this day, the number one public university in the United States for biology research. So it's a very heavily biology-focused, evolution-focused school. It was a great opportunity to learn about this subject. But as I was sitting in these classes learning about evolution, I began to think, you know, there is something majorly missing from the the evidence that they're citing for evolution. And that is, we see all these complex features in biology, but how do they evolve in this gradual Darwinian fashion, one little mutation at a time? And so at the end of my freshman year of college, a friend of mine who was also a science major at UC San Diego suggested I read this book called Darwin's Black Box by Michael Behe. Well, I had never even heard of Michael Behe. I'd never even heard of intelligent design up to that point. But I read this book. I I did an internship that summer at a huge international engineering um, firm. And on my lunch breaks, I would read Darwin's Black Box. And as I read this book, I was like, really connecting with it I felt like Michael Behe was articulating in words through the concept of irreducible complexity this idea that my very you know at that point uh, very rudimentary undergraduate ideas had been unable to put into words and he was putting them into words this idea that there are these complex features can, that cannot evolve one small mutational step at a time and so it really resonated with me so for then it was just it was just all down there all downhill from there. I started reading other books by people like William Dembski, um, Jonathan Wells, other books by Philip Johnson, and some of the other early writers of the ID movement. And I realized that I was learning about this really exciting new concept of intelligent design um, on my own time. But my classes were only teaching the pro-evolution view, it was was the same thing I experienced when I was in uh, public schools in high school and all that. You're only learning about this this pro-Darwin-only view in my classes, but yet on my own time, I realized there's this exciting new theory that's being developed by credible scientists that is posing a challenge to that view. Why wasn't I learning about this in my classes? It really bothered me. So in 1999, um, Philip Johnson actually came and spoke at UC San Diego, and I started a discussion group with some other uh, students after he came and spoke, Philip Johnson, for those of your listeners who don't know, was, was sort of seen as the godfather of the ID movement. He was a law professor at UC Berkeley who wrote a book in the early 90s called Darwin on Trial that sort of put this idea out that there you can actually find scientific evidence that challenges uh, neo-Darwinian evolution. So um, after he spoke, some friends and I started a student club to help have discussion groups about um, intelligent design and evolution. And it was called the Intelligent Design an evolution awareness or idea club. And we started this group to try to create a place, a forum where students like us, you know, whatever wherever they were coming from, pro evolution, pro ID, whatever, could at least have a venue to talk about these these questions because our classes were hardly practically never would they afford an opportunity to have real discussions about evolution and intelligent design where you could actually Challenge certain views, or talk about the evidence for intelligent design. So we started this club, the Idea Club, um, as a venue for students to have these conversations, and it took off. Uh, the student club, within a couple of years, had grown into a five hundred one c three nonprofit, and we've sent, we've since seen uh, I would I don't know the exact number, but it's probably over you know seventy Idea Clubs have been started around the world to date. Um, helping students to have a, a, a fair venue to discuss these issues. And I'll just say one last thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my big passions for the Idea Club was to create a forum that was a safe space where anybody could come and talk about these issues and feel welcomed, whatever their viewpoint was. Again, whether they were an atheist or a Christian, a young earther, an old earther, an ID proponent, a Darwinist or or anything in between. We really wanted people to feel welcoming and, and, and warmly invited to have these conversations. And I think we really succeeded in that because especially when I started this club at UC San Diego with a couple other students, um, we found that we had people with all different viewpoints and backgrounds come into the club on a regular basis. We would invite, you know, evolutionary biologists to come and present at the club so we could hear their perspective. And so we could we could talk with them and dialogue with them. We wanted to learn about their viewpoint. We also wanted to learn about the ID viewpoints. Of course, we brought those speakers in as well. So we really um, had a, a passion to allow people to have rational, friendly dialogue over this issue where they were not, you know, getting at each mm-hmm. other's throats, but could really have a, a a genuinely friendly opportunity to to discuss these things. And that spirit has carried on into all the idea clubs since.
0: Yeah, that's, that's great and it's amazing. Um, what kind of sprung from that idea? So getting into like intelligent design, um, kind of looking at like why I think that this picture might actually like be more accurate and works um compared to like maybe like the traditional um evolution, like naturalistic evolution picture. Um, why do you think that there's intelligent design and why are you a proponent of ID? I think one of the big ideas is always like irreducible complexity. Um, but I'll turn to you. Like when you look at like thinking for um why there would be intelligent design, where, where do you go?
1: Sure. So a few years ago, I posted a series on evolutionnews.org, which is Discovery Institute's main uh, news site for this topic. And in that uh, series, I outlined six top lines of evidence for intelligent design. So if you go to Evolution News and you search for top six lines of evidence, I also combine them into a mm-hmm. single article on Discovery's website, which is uh, discovery.org. So these are the six top lines of evidence I would cite for intelligent design. Number one is just the origin of the universe. I mean, the idea that we have um this universe that, that arose uh from a singularity twelve to thirteen billion years ago. Um, and I think that the Kalam argument is a very powerful powerful argument for the need for a first cause. Um anything that that has a that began to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Um that's a very powerful argument for the need for some kind of a super powerful external cause outside the universe to bring the universe into existence. Um, I think it's a very strong argument for intelligent design. Another argument would be the fine tuning of the universe. Um, The physical laws and constants of nature are finely tuned for life, meaning when we look at them, if they were just slightly different, then complex life like human beings would not be possible. Um, Some examples would be like the cosmological constant, where it's been said that it has to be fine-tuned to within one part in ten to the ninetieth power, or the initial entropy of the universe um, has been said. And this is this is coming from mainstream scientists. Okay, that the initial entropy of the universe has to be so precisely fine-tuned that if it were one part in in ten raised to the power of ten to the one hundred twenty-third power different, then complex, then then basically things like galaxies and stars, much less complex life would not be possible within our universe, okay? So, the, the fine-tuning of the universe is astronomical, and that's not a pun. That's mm-hmm. a literally, I mean, it's astronomically precise. And I think that that is a, is a good example of finding what we call complex and specified information in the laws of nature. And what ID theorists say is that we find when we find something that is both complex, mean, meaning that it's unlikely, and it's specified, meaning that it, it matches a very precise set of conditions that is needed for something to happen, then we, in our experience, complex and specified information always comes from design. And we don't just see this fine tuning or this complex and specified information in the laws of the universe. We also see it in biology. So the third area I would say we see evidence for design is in the information in our DNA. Um, Proteins are encoded by genes, which are in our DNA. And ID theorists have done research finding that the amino acid sequences of proteins has to be very finely tuned in order for proteins to function properly. So, for example, Douglas Axe, who's a protein scientist who works with Discovery Institute, he uh, did research on the beta-lactamase enzyme in E. coli and found that that enzyme, the likelihood of getting by chance an amino acid sequence that would yield a stable functional protein fold in the beta-lactamase enzyme is less than 1 in 10 to the 77 sequences, okay? Mm-hmm. So the likelihood of, of just by chance stumbling upon a functional protein sequence in a, in a typical enzyme like beta-lactamase is incredibly unlikely. They're basically like trying to find a very isolated island in the middle of the ocean, and you have no idea where to go to find it, okay? How are you going to stumble upon that ice that isolated island of functionality by chance? You're not going to do that unless you have a map. Well, intelligent agents have the ability to have foresight and will and intentionality where they can see, they can find these highly isolated sequences um, by very, very easily because they can think again with will and forethought and intentionality to know what needs to be done to solve a problem. And so intelligent agents are capable of producing these finely tuned, information-rich, complex and specified um, sequences that we see in our DNA. Um, one of the most profound things that I learn about when studying um, science is that there is no physical or chemical law that dictates the ordering of the nucleotides in our DNA. Okay, let me say that again. There is no physical or chemical law that dictates the order of the nucleotides in our de- in our DNA. The nucleotide bases in our DNA are each chemically equivalent as far as their likelihood or um, the, the chemical bonding principles that go into generating DNA. They're all chemically equal. So there's no law that says now you have to have a, an, an A, a T, a C, or a G. So what generates the order in our of, of our nucleotides in our DNA? It is information. There is true information in our DNA, and this is again widely attested to by mainstream science that our inf- that our DNA contains genuine information. So what is ordering that those nucleotides? Well, again, you need some cause that can account for the very rare, very unlikely sequences of of nucleotides in our DNA mm-hmm. and the fact that they're specified and finely tuned to match these precise sequences that are needed to yield functional proteins. Um, and then of course, what is the outcome of when we 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 have all this information in our DNA? It encodes proteins and that those proteins are produced through a basically it's a it's a computer like system of information processing. Okay. And then what is the result of those the system of this, this this information-rich code in our DNA, which then undergoes a computer-like system of information processing to produce, well, what is produced? We're producing machines, machine-like <laughs> structures that basically run the show in our cells. Our cells are full of molecular machines that perform most of the vital functions in our cells. So wh- where in our experience do things like uh, language-based code, computer-like information processing, and machine-like structures. In all of our experience, those things come only from intelligence. So we have sort of this positive argument that intelligence is the best explanation for these complex features that we see in biology. At the very heart of life, again, we see this language-based code that sends commands and codes and is read and interpreted by the molecular machinery of the cell through a computer-like system of commands and codes to then generate these machine-like structures. But in all of our experience, language-based code, computer-like information processing, and machine-like structures only come from intelligence. And it turns out that these machine-like structures in our cells are what Michael Behe calls irreducibly complex, okay? Meaning that there's a certain core number of parts that have to be there all at once, or these machines do not function. Um, And so if you remove the complexity, if you reduce the complexity, they don't function. That's why we call it Irreducible complexity. And one of the interesting points about irreducible complexity is that it both Mm -hmm. shows this purposeful arrangement of parts, which is a positive case for design. But because you have to have a minimum number of parts present in order for the the machine to function, it cannot be built up in the step by step by step, gradualistic, evolutionary pathway that is required by Darwin's theory. So irreducible complexity is both a positive argument for intelligent design and it also is a challenge to Darwinian evolution, the likelihood of random mutations bringing together all these parts all at once to produce these um, irreducibly complex structures is highly unlikely. And therefore, Darwinian theory struggles to account for the origin of these irreducibly complex structures. A um, Couple other points. Those are my top mm-hmm. four lines of evidence. We'll go through two more. Next one is the origin of animals and animal body plans. Um, let's look at this first from the fossil record. When we look at the fossil record, we see a pattern of explosions of new types of life forms throughout the history of life, going back to the origin of animals in the Cambrian explosion, where nearly all of the major animal phyla, the major groups of animals, appear abruptly in the fossil record with no direct evolutionary precursors in the Cambrian period about 530 million years ago. That's not the only explosion we see in the history of life. There's a great um, Ordovician biodiversity event where we see an explosion of new types of marine life. There's a bird explosion in the fossil record. There's a plant explosion and an angiosperm or flowering plant explosion. There's a mammal explosion. Um, our own The the origin of our own genus Homo has been called a Big Bang because when, when our own genus appears in the fossil record, it appears abruptly, without direct evolutionary precursors. So the origin of animals and animal body plans, I think, poses a challenge to Darwinism. But what do intelligent agents do? They tend to introduce a structure into the world, fully formed and fully functional, without sort of this you know, gradual buildup. When Ford wants to introduce a new model of car into the marketplace, it builds the car and it's fully functional when it introduces it. And that's exactly what we see in the fossil record. The, the wholesale introduction of these fully formed, body plans. Um, So lastly, the origin of humans. I just mentioned, that's my sixth line of evidence for ID. Um, Human beings, when our genus Homo appears in the fossil record, it appears abruptly. This is quite well attested to in the technical literature. Um, But it's not just our bodies that appear in this abrupt manner, but also our intellect. And I think many aspects of human intellect show that human life is about more than just survival and reproduction. And we see many abilities of human beings which far outstrip the requirements of natural selection. You know, why do we build cathedrals? Why do we paint the Sistine Chapel? Why do why are we able to ponder the deep mysteries of relativity and quantum mechanics? Why do we worship uh, gods? Why do we uh, create religion? Um, why is love the highest expression of, of human emotion? Um, if, if the only fat forces and factors that were shaping the human mind, were those that required us to be able to survive and reproduce basically hunting and gathering on the African savanna about one to two million years ago. None of those requirements would produce these higher functions of human beings. Um, and also our high moral this universal morality and complex language that we see throughout humanity. Um, you know, if all we had to do was survive and reproduce on the African savanna a few million years ago, which is the standard evolutionary view, none of these higher functions would be needed. So I think that these alone show that li- human life is about more than just survival and reproduction, and it points to higher purposes that were put there by a designer. So anyway, that was a very long answer to your question, but um, those are the top six lines of evidence. Origin of the universe, fine-tuning of the laws of the universe, origin of information in our DNA origin of irreducibly complex molecular machines, origin of animals and animal body plans, and the origin of humans.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much for going through all those answers. I know it took a minute, but uh, I think it's really informative because it's not like I just like one little thing hiding in a corner. It's, it's a very b- big topic. So I appreciate you breaking that down. Um, one of the like main objections here, we're going to get into objections, And if you're listening and you have questions, I saw one or two already. Um, we'll save about the last 10 or 15 minutes for Q&A if there's questions. Um, but the, one of the main objections is that ID is just like a big God of the gaps argument um, where we have these things that may be like seemingly irre- irreducibly complex, or we have this information or these higher order functions. And it's like, well, we don't really know how they got there, um, especially given like naturalism, but saying God did it is just kind of like a cop out, um, so to speak. So how would you respond um, to like kind of like the general argument that ID arguments are really just like God of the gaps? Uh, yeah.
1: Sure. So that you're right, Zach, that's a very common objection to ID. We hear it all the time. In fact, There was recently a a young man who posted an article on the theistic evolution group Biologos's website, and -hmm. his main objection to intelligent design is that it's a god of the gaps argument. And we hear this very, very often from ID critics, both both, uh, theistic and atheistic people who don't agree with intelligent design. This is probably one of the most common substantive objections. We see some other objections that are maybe less substantive, Mm -hmm. uh, like the name calling. We get that a lot too. But I appreciate when people... out these substantive arguments, even if I disagree with them, um, look, I want to say that this is one of those many areas where reasonable people can disagree. So if you disagree with intelligent design, I don't think you're crazy. I'm not here to think any less of you because I have a different view. Um, We can hold different views on this and have rational, friendly conversations about these things. But I do very much disagree with the argument that ID is a god of the gaps um, argument. Um, First of all, what is the god of the gaps argument? Well, god of the gaps, as far as I can tell, was a term that was coined um, because people were afraid that if we appealed to God to explain something in nature, then over time, uh, and we would say, okay, like the classic example is lightning bolts. I don't know if anybody actually ever used this, but this is like the way the argument goes. Back in the day, we appealed to God or the gods to explain things like lightning bolts. Um, and we didn't understand lightning, we didn't understand what was going on, so we just appealed to the supernatural. Well, now we've discovered science, and now we we understand that there is a perfectly good scientific explanation for lightning. And so over time, all these things that we thought could be explained by appealing to God, um, they are now, that that list of things is shrinking. And God, our arguments for God are receding further and further into the gaps in our knowledge. And so today, If we simply take something that we don't understand scientifically and we say that that is best that is we explain that by appealing to god then that's a god of the gaps we're appealing to god based upon gaps in our knowledge and over time science is going to fill in those gaps in our knowledge and it's going to make it uh more and more dangerous for us to make these arguments for god because uh these arguments for god are going to are going to diminish and get refuted over time Um, some god of the gaps people have such a fear of this that they will make no arguments for God whatsoever because they're afraid that any argument they make is eventually going to be uh, subsumed by science and it is going to become a God of the gaps argument, okay? So why is this argument not a valid objection against intelligent design? Well, number one, intelligent design does not appeal to God. Intelligent design appeals to an intelligent agent. The definition of intelligent design is it is a scientific theory which holds that many aspects of the universe are best explained by an intelligent cause rather than an undirected cause like natural selection, okay? So we're appealing an intelligent design to an intelligent cause, not to God, not to a divine being. Now, the immediate objection I get is, well, Casey, I Googled your name. And after I saw all the terrible things that the ID critics are saying about you, I went to your personal website where I learned that you're a Christian. And you believe that the designer is god so aren't you being disingenuous or coy or sort of uh, sneaky when you say that intelligent design doesn't say the designer is god when you really believe the designer is god well my answer is um i'm not being sneaky at all i never have tried to hide the fact that i'm a christian who believes that the designer is the god of the bible if you go down the list of leading id proponents Pretty much every single one that I'm aware of has been quite open about their personal religious beliefs about who the designer is. However, my conclusion that the designer is the God of the Bible is my own personal religious conviction. It's not a conclusion of the theory of intelligent design. Okay, So that is why within the ID movement and the ID community, we have people with a very wide variety of views on who the designer is. We have um, Muslims and Jews who believe that the the designer is Allah or, I mean, obviously, I I believe Christians and Jews believe in the same God, but, you know, we obviously, not everybody in the ID movement is a Christian. Uh, We have people who are of a more Eastern religious persuasion, who would see um, the universe in a more maybe polytheistic or more Eastern kind of view. We have Buddhists in the ID movement. We even have some professed atheists and agnostic in the ID movement. Who would they would say? Look, I don't believe the designer is a divine being, or maybe I don't know who the designer is. That's the, sort of the agnostic position. They believe that there's something out there, but they don't have any particular religious commitment. They don't know who the designer is. Um, the famous atheist Anthony Flew, who mm-hmm. used to debate against C.S. Lewis, he wrote a book a number of years ago before he died, where basically he said, "I am persuaded by the evidence for from nature, from DNA." He actually cited the evidence that intelligent design is real. But he didn't come from that with any religious pre And in fact, I think that he never actually converted to a full theistic religious viewpoint. Mm-hmm. He kind of stayed yeah. some kind of a, maybe like a deistic agnostic um, for the rest of his life. But what that shows is that intelligent design is not committed to some particular religious view about the identity of the designer. Now, granted, uh, you can make some arguments that might say that Um, the identity of the designer is most compatible with with a supernatural being, especially when you're talking about maybe the Big Bang. Um, How do the, you know, that's gonna require a designer that exists outside the universe. But especially when we look at the the evidence for design in biology, uh, we might say that the information in our DNA is finely tuned to produce these molecular machines. But that information does not say made by Yahweh or made by Allah or made by Buddha or made by Yoda or whoever you think the designer is. It's simply an information-rich language-based sequence that um, indicates design, but it doesn't tell you anything about who the designer is. So especially in biology, we cannot identify who the designer is. The most we can appeal to is an intelligent cause, okay? So that's Mm -hmm. number one. ID is not appealing to God. But is ID a gaps-based argument? Is it appealing to things that we don't know? and appealing to our lack of knowledge about certain features of nature rather than appealing to what we do know? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Intelligent design is not based upon gaps in our knowledge. Intelligent design is based upon our our direct observation-based experience of how intelligent agents operate in the real world when they design things. So intelligent design begins with observations of intelligent agents. And we have a huge data set of intelligent agents that we can study in the natural world, namely human beings. We can study human designers to understand how do they design things, what are the types of features that are produced when we see that an intelligent agent has been at work. So um, when I say that ID doesn't refer to God, that's not a rhetorical point, that's a principal point, point. And it's important that we refer to intelligent agents because intelligent agents are a cause that we can study and understand in the world around us. And once we appreciate that intelligent intelligent agency is a known cause then we that we can study and understand and whose effects we can study and understand and learn to reliably detect in the world around us, then intelligent design becomes a proper cause for scientific study. Mm. So we now are saying, look, I can observe intelligent agents and see what is produced when intelligent agent is at work. Right now I'm speaking. You're hearing words come out of my mouth the likelihood of the vibrations in the air coming out of my voice box to be exactly as they are is incredibly low. It's incredibly unlikely that that the exact vibrations that would be coming out of my voice box would be exactly as they are. So we would say that these sound vibrations are complex, yet they're also specified. And then when your ear hears these words and interprets the signal, they match precise vibrational sound patterns that conform to the English language, okay? So it is highly specified and that these vibrational sound patterns match precise patterns that conform to the English language, okay? So the, the mm-hmm. basically the, the speech that is coming out of my mouth right now is complex and specified information. That is an indicator of intelligent design. Whenever intelligent agents act, whether it's generating code on a keyboard or speaking or writing or chiseling, um, you know, the side of a mountain into the shape of famous dead presidents. Intelligent agents are producing complex and specified information, unlikely features that conform to specific patterns that we can recognize. That is how we detect and recognize intelligent design. So we use our positive understanding of how intelligent agents are at work in the world around us to detect design because we know from our experience that when we see these information-rich structures that that is an indicator that an intelligent agent was at work. So this is not based upon what we don't know, it's based upon what we do know. And we do know that complex and specified information is an indicator of intelligent design. And again, examples would be language-based code, computer-like information processing, machine-like structures. In all of our experience, those things come only from intelligent agents. Yet what do we find is at the heart of life? A language-based code, that undergoes computer-like information processing where we're interpreting commands and codes to produce an output. And what is that output? That output is machine-like structures that run the show in our cells. This is a positive argument based upon finding in nature the kind of information and complexity which in our experience only comes from intelligence. So this is not based upon what we don't know about finding intelligent design in the gaps. It's based about inferring design based upon what we do know. And we do know, based upon our experience, where these types of features always trace back to and where they come from. They only Mm -hmm. come from intelligence in our experience. So this is the opposite of a God of the gaps argument. It's an argument that says that we know where these kinds of things come from. And in our experience, they always come from intelligence. So I would definitely say that the God of the gaps argument does not hold up against intelligent design. And it can get, this debate can get back and forth. It can be a little bit more complicated than this. And I can go back and forth with people if they want. But for me, I think that we, we see that we infer intelligent design based upon a positive argument, uh, not a negative one, where we're finding in nature the kind of information and complexity, which in our experience comes only from intelligence.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Casey, for that answer. We um, will be going to Q&A to finish up the hour in about 10 minutes, but a few more objections here um, that we'll kind of go through. Is, and one of the common ones is that ID is just a violation of the scientific method. Um, you have this idea of like, when we study things, you make tests and experiments, and someone will say, maybe, hey, with the ID movement, you just see, oh, well, there's this issue here, um, therefore God, or something along these lines, something similar to like a God of the gaps objection. So is there anything like different that you respond to when someone says you're just kind of like violating the scientific method? Sure. So I'm a, I'm a
1: big fan of the scientific method. And in fact, um, a big part of my work at Discovery Institute is to help to manage and, and oversee the research program. Discovery Institute actually funds quite a bit of scientific research. And I help to manage and oversee this and to make sure that, again, these scientists that, that we're funding are have the resources they need to do their research. So mm-hmm. the way I learned the scientific method when I was in high school was in my high school biology textbook used a very simple four-step process for the scientific method. You start with observations. Then you go to hypothesis or making predictions. Then you test those uh, predictions or that hypothesis through experiment. And then you make a conclusion. And of course, we always hold that conclusion tentatively subject to future scientific investigations. Um, I am kind of a a biology textbook nerd. And my my office here in Discovery Institute has something like over 100 biology textbooks. Mm -hmm. And they all have almost the same description of the scientific method. Observation, hypothesis, experiment, conclusion, and intelligent design uses that precise scientific method to make its claims. Okay, so we start off with observations about how intelligent agents operate, where we can observe, you know, what is produced when an intelligent agent has been at work. We could then make a hypo. We observe, by the way, that intelligent agents produce high levels of complex and specified information. We can then make a hypothesis that if a natural object was, in fact, designed, it will contain. High levels of complex and specified information. So we're predicting, on our ba- the basis of our ID theory, that we're going to find high CSI or complex and specified information in nature. So then we go out and we test nature, and in fact, ID theorists have done experimental research on proteins, on the laws of nature, um, on molecular machines to find that they are finely tuned. They do in fact, re- are, they do in fact have highly unlikely uh, configurations that re- that re- that have to match very specific mm-hmm. patterns in order for these biological functions to work properly. So they are rich in complex and specified information. Um, I mentioned earlier Doug Axe's research um, where he looked at how specific or how rare does the, pro- the amino acid sequence of certain proteins have to be in order for them to function. Um, mm-hmm. Other ID theorists have looked at um, other proteins asking, what is the how difficult is it To basically um, evolve a new protein function. Starting with a a, a given protein that's very similar, how difficult is it to convert that protein to to, uh, perform the function of another protein? And they find that many mutations are needed. Again, showing that these these structures are information-rich. Looking for fine-tuning within biology. Um, So, We find, then, that there is evidence of high CSI in biology. Another form of of, uh, experimental research that ID theorists have done are what are called genetic knockout experiments, where we basically take molecular machines, like the bacterial flagellum, this outboard motor on the back of bacteria that propels them around. And you can knock out one gene at a time and find that it requires all of its approximately 35 protein parts in order for them to function. So this is, by definition, irreducibly complex. And that is a good example of high levels of complex and specified information in molecular Mm -hmm. machines. So we then can say, look, we are finding this prediction of intelligent design. So we then conclude that intelligent design is the best explanation for these structures. Now, I want to make a very crucial point. The god of the gaps objection will often say, well, you're, you're holding science back when you say that it was made by god, but it really wasn't. Well, intelligent design. When we conclude intelligent design, we're always holding that conclusion to intelligent design exactly the way we hold any other scientific conclusion. And that is that we hold it tentatively, subject to future investigations. Every scientific theory, you know, you're you're putting your neck out and and saying, chop it off here. Maybe it's going to turn out to be right. Maybe it's going to turn out to be wrong. That's what science is all about. You make a scientific conclusion, the more and more scientific hypothesis, you test it, then more and more than it's confirmed, eventually you might even be able to say it's a theory. And I would say that with intelligent design, it has been confirmed in many different fields and aspects of nature. It deserves to be called a scientific theory, Um, but it's always held tentatively because it's possible that future scientific investigations are gonna find out that it was Mm -hmm. wrong and that these predictions of intelligent design really didn't hold up. Or maybe some other scientific theory is gonna come along and explain the data better. So far that hasn't happened, But we always have to hold our conclusion of intelligent design tentatively. So this idea that intelligent design is holding back the progress of science, hardly. If you're excluding intelligent design from consideration, then you are the one who's holding back the progress of science because you're not allowing us to invoke this cause that we understand from studying the world around us, this cause of intelligence, you're not allowing us to invoke that within science. So Mm -hmm. I see no non-arbitrary rule that can be um, enforced to exclude us from concluding intelligent design. Um, And so again, in that respect, if you're going to say that we cannot uh, infer intelligent design uh, because some other explanation might be the cause, well, that's true for any scientific theory. So we have to treat ID fairly like we would treat any scientific theory. We never say to Darwinian evolution, oh, well, you know, something else might be the answer. Therefore, you're not allowed to infer Darwinian evolution. And by the way, I think that Darwinian evolution explains many aspects of nature. Not all aspects of biology, but there are many aspects of biology that it can't explain. I have no problem with that. But mm-hmm. I think that there are other aspects where intelligence on explains them better. So again, we can hold intelligence on tentatively and use a scientific method to infer design.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, and we're gonna get to one more question here before we open up for Q&A. But I think it, you're totally right, because it is unfair to just um, to label it just as like a God of the gaps argument. Because, for example, like one of the big mysteries in like astrophysics is like quantum gravity. Um, and like, how do you like get together like classical mechanics and quantum mechanics? And you don't see any Christian saying, well, oh, I don't know, therefore, God, like, it, it's just like, it's just not how Christians work. And I think there's a lot of likes to ID. But one thing I want to get at you very quickly here before we go to a little bit of Q&A, which is does evidence against evolution, Mean that there's evidence for design. Uh, maybe they say it's like a non sequitur, it doesn't follow that just because there's issues with Darwin's theory. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's evidence for design. There could just be another theory. Um, and it's almost like God of the Gap skin here, but uh, just a little bit differently worded. Um, so how, how do you respond here?
1: Sure. I mean, as I said, um, evident, evidence against one theory is not there in and of itself evidence for another theory. And so we don't demonstrate intelligent design simply by disproving evolution. Now, it is true that in some cases, ID and Darwinian evolution happen to make mutually exclusive predictions. So, for example, with regards to irreducibly complex molecular machines, um, we know from our experience that intelligent agents readily produce irreducibly complex molecular machines. So that is a prediction of intelligent design. But yet Darwinian theory says, Darwin said that if there existed any structure which cannot be formed by numerous successive slight modifications, then he said my theory would absolutely break down. Well, an irreducibly complex structure is one which cannot be formed by numerous successive slide modifications because you have to have all these parts there all at once or it doesn't function. There's no benefit or advantage for natural selection to preserve until all these parts are present, okay? So Darwinian evolution struggles to explain the origin of irreducible complexity. So there we have these two models making mutually exclusive predictions. So that doesn't mean that that, that there's like some knee-jerk false dichotomy here. It's an actual dichotomy that Darwinian evolution and intelligent design are producing, are predicting different things. Now, I would also turn around. I would say that, um, could we say that evidence for design is really evidence against evolution? And again, I say not necessarily. Um, For example, junk DNA, okay? Intelligent design predicts that we will find function for this non-coding DNA, by and large at least, in our cells. Maybe some of it was originally uh, designed to be functional and it's lost its function. Um, but, but, you know, there are many Darwinian evolutionists who over the last couple decades have seen this revolution in our understanding of junk DNA, where we now know that the vast majority of our genome shows evidence of biochemical function. ID theorists see, the, see this revolution we say, this is great. We've been predicting this since like the, the 1990s that we would mm-hmm. find function for this junk DNA. But um, some Darwinian evolutionists, like actually Richard Dawkins and Francis Collins, who are both um, proponents of ma- sort of uh, materialistic models. Uh, Francis Collins is a Christian, but he thinks this is how God made uh, life, was through Darwinian evolution. They have now backtracked and they say, you know what? We're no longer going to say that, that the cell is mo- mostly junk DNA. Of course, in the maybe at one point they, they both did predict On their basis of their evolutionary view, that most of the cell cells DNA would be junk, but they now have backtracked and they say we accept that there's good evidence that a lot of our DNA is actually not junk. But they say this doesn't pose a problem to us because Dawkins, for example, says this is what we would expect from Darwinian evolution: functionality that is being preserved by natural selection. And my response to Dawkins is, okay, maybe that's a fair point. I mean, for maybe. There are certain um, areas where it breaks down. That's a complicated discussion. But if we're looking at a particular piece of non-coding, non-protein coding DNA, um, and we find function for it, that is a fulfilled prediction of intelligent design. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to say that that refutes Darwinian evolution. I mean, maybe that was just something that, was predict- that um, we can account for by natural selection, preserving a functional feature. Fine. I don't have a huge problem with that. So we're not saying that, you know, evidence against design is evidence for evolution by necessarily or the evidence against evolution is necessarily against evidence for design. We have to look more at the logic of the argument. In some cases, maybe idea and evolution will predict the same thing. I don't know. Um, But we're not looking at a false dichotomy here where we're just using a negative argument against evolution. If we don't have Mm -hmm. this positive argument for design where we're finding in nature the kind of information and complexity, which in our experience only comes from intelligence, I don't care what evidence you have against evolution, you can't infer design. You need that positive argument in order to, to infer design, and that's where I would leave it. Yeah,
0: yeah, great, thank you so much. Um, we're gonna do a little bit of QA here, we'll answer as many questions as we can in the next few minutes. Um, standing for truth says, um, it has been claimed that the Lensi E. coli experiment encounters the of complexity. Is this true? Um, what are your thoughts here, um, Casey? Casey,
1: so, um, I, I, I mean, obviously, the Lensky coli experiment is an experiment where Richard Lensky, uh, uh, a microbiologist at the University of Michigan has been running, uh, letting E. coli reproduce in his refrigerators at the University of Mich- Michigan for decades now. And there's tens of thousands of generations that these E. coli have, have undergone. Um, I have heard claims that the, uh, that he calls it the long-term evolution experiment. Ivert claims that the long-term evolution experiment shows that we can evolve new features through Darwinian evolution. And one of the most prominent examples that's out there is what's called the CIT or CIT plus phenotype. It, they claim that um, E. coli evolved a new feature, a new function, the ability to basically uptake and metabolize citrate and live off of citrate. And that this evolved during the long-term evolution experiment. Well, when you look at what actually is going on at the genetic level, you find that that's really not true. Um, what uh, There was a paper that was published by a pro intelligence design microbiologist named Scott Minnick at the University of Idaho. He published it in the Journal of Bacteriology in 2016. And he and his lab's team looked at the genetic basis for the SIT plus phenotype. And, and in their own words, this is almost a direct quote, they said, no new genetic information evolved in this evolutionary pathway. So what happened? Well, in order to allow uh, the E. coli to metabolize citrate, you were either breaking features at the molecular level or you you were just making more of something you already had. In fact, this has been a, a little discussed aspect of this experiment. E. coli under natural conditions already have the ability to metabolize and live off of citrate. Okay, I want to say it again. E. coli already can live off of citrate. So this ability to live off of citrate was not a new pathway that E. coli evolved, okay? What they did is they evolved the ability to uptake citrate under oxic conditions. And the way they did that is that normally this pathway for metabolizing and uptaking citrate is turned off. But in the long-term evolutionary experiment, they put these E. coli in an environment where they were starved for carbon. And the only carbon source that was there was citrate, okay? So these E. coli really had to find a way to survive or they were going to die off. Well, as Michael Behe points out in his book, Darwin Devolves*, m- most uh, commonly, when Darwinian evolution evolves a new adaptation at the molecular level, it does so by breaking or diminishing functionality, okay? So what these mm-hmm. E. coli did is they they turned off a repressor that switched – I'm sorry, they, they broke – a repressor that switched off the citrate uptake pathway. So now they were able to uptake citrate under these Oxy conditions where citrate was present. That's the first thing they did. The second thing they did is they duplicated a couple genes that encoded these um, molecular machines that already existed in E. coli that allowed them to uptake citrate. And so by by doing that duplication, they were able to produce more of these intake uh, machines. And uptake more citrate than they normally would have. So, what happened in this experiment was one mutation broke a feature at the molecular level, and then two other mutations allowed them to just produce more of something that they already had. And that's why Scott Minnick, in his paper, said that no new genetic information evolved. They did not actually evolve anything new in this evolutionary pathway. So, I would say that um, the, the long term evolution experiment is a great example of what evolution can do. If you put organisms in under dire conditions, they might evolve the ability to survive, but they're going to do so by breaking things or by producing more of what you already have. That is the typical way that evolution proceeds. If you read Michael Behe's 2019 book, Darwin Evolves, he documents numerous cases in the scientific literature where the way that evolution progresses is by breaking things not or, or diminishing functionality um, or by making more of something you've already got, not by making something new.
0: Mm, Awesome. Well, thank you. Uh, Another question here from Germania, which says, uh, what would falsify um, the designer watchmaker argument? Obviously, didn't make like Paley's watchmaker argument here, but maybe more broadly to intelligent design. Um, What what are your thoughts here?
1: Well, I do think that if there were plausible evolutionary pathways that would show that these structures um, really were not unlikely, in other words, they don't have high levels of complex and specified information, then I think that that would show that um, intelligent design is not the best explanation here and that maybe there's a better explanation. Another area I think that ID could be falsified would be in junk DNA. In fact, look, I've been around this debate, like I said, for about, about 20 years, going back to the late 1990s. And when I first got into this debate, I would have people beating me over the head with junk DNA. This was long before we'd really started to study this, um, they call it the dark matter of the genome, the the, the, the DNA that does not encode proteins. We did not understand what it was doing. And so uh, from my perspective, for a long time, uh, people were claiming that intelligent design was falsified by finding junk DNA by and large in the genome. At that time, you heard people saying, you know, upwards of 90% of our DNA was junk. In the language of God, Francis Collins says that something like 45% of our DNA is junk. Uh, Carl Zimmer says in a textbook, uh, he's a, a well-known uh, science writer who's a hardcore evolutionist, he says that uh, you know some 50% of our DNA is evolutionary junk. And my response to that is, well, you know what? As an ID proponent, they might have a, a valid point there. Because when intelligent agents act, again, we're starting with our observations of what intelligent agents do when they act. When they act, they tend to produce things that have a function. They tend to produce things for a reason. And so I think there's a fair argument to make that if most of our cell, our genome, most of our DNA turned out to be, um, sorry, the sun is coming on my here. Um, <laughs> if most of our genome turned out to be useless genetic garbage, that would probably be a good argument that it is not the result of design, but maybe the result of evolutionary or unguided mutational mechanisms. Well, it turns out that that prediction that the cell was largely junk has turned out to be wrong. And in fact, going back to the 1990s, what ID theorists were saying, and I was still like an undergraduate at the time, but I was thinking this, I was thinking we really don't know enough about the genome yet to conclude that it's mostly junk and useless genetic garbage. We should adopt a wait and see approach and be more careful than trying to prematurely falsify design based upon things we don't know. So, you know, you talked about God of the gaps. I would say sometimes we've seen uh, Darwinism of the gaps or Mm -hmm. materialism of the gaps where, They assumed that things that we don't know would turn out to support evolution. Um, And I'm not saying that Darwinian evolution cannot explain the presence of functionality in in, in much of this DNA, but I will say this. The junk DNA paradigm was born and bred out of a neo-Darwinian mindset, okay, that assumed that our genomes are the result of just, you know, untold eons of unguided mutations. That had no purpose and were no were no way planned. It had no relationship to the needs of the organism, and so we would accumulate all this genetic junk. And you can find numerous quotes in the technical literature predicting, on the basis of evolutionary thinking, that our genomes would largely be junk. ID theorists said, "No, let's wait and see, because we think it's going to turn out to have fu- have function." And guess who turned out to be right? The ID theorists. And again, ID could have been falsified here. In fact, in his um, 2007 book, uh, Living with Darwin, Columbia University um, uh, philosopher, Philip Kitcher, who I actually studied under during my undergraduate years at UC San Diego. He taught uh, a Western Civ course that I took. Um, He argues in that book that ID is falsified by junk DNA, okay? Mm -hmm. And if he were right that junk DNA really were by and large junk, I might agree with him, but that was written in 2007. And in 2012, the ENCODE project came out with its results that found that upwards of 80% of the genome has a detectable biochemical function. And we've now seen hundreds and hundreds, if not many thousands of papers that have identified specific functions for DNA that we once thought was this non-coding junk DNA. So I would say this is an example where ID could have been falsified, but it turned out that the evidence actually did not falsify it. It actually fulfilled a testable prediction that ID had made.
0: It's a great question.
1: Thank you for that great question there.
0: It is great. And I I think it's a good way to kind of almost wrap things up here. One question that should be a lot quicker here is from Susan, which says um, Do they still use the peppered moth and Haskell's um, embryos in the high school textbooks? So um,
1: when I went to high school in the 1990s, they were using uh, Heckel's embryos and certainly peppered moths. Um, In the year 2000, Jonathan Wells published a book called Icons of Evolution. Jonathan Wells is a Pro ID. A molecular biologist. He got his PhD in molecular biology from UC Berkeley, and he also uh, studied a lot of embryology. And uh, what he exposed in his book, Icons of Evolution, he kind of raised the public's public's consciousness to the fact that Heckel's embryos uh, drawings, which were drawn by this famous uh, German embryologist Ernst Heckel in the 19th century, that he overstated the degree of similarity between vertebrate embryos to sort of overstate the the case for common descent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, and and there have been even mainstream evolutionary scientists like Stephen Jay Gould, who criticized textbooks for using Heckel's embryo drawings because they're so inaccurate. Um, Gould even called them fraudulent. So uh, because of the work of people like Jonathan Wells and the public's consciousness getting raised to the fact that these textbooks are inaccurate, they have, by and large, been removed from textbooks. But you can still find textbooks published in the last ten years that have Heckel's embryo drawings. I believe that there is a textbook um, by the pro, a uh, very very anti-ID geologist Donald Prothro that was published since 2010 that had Heckel's embryos drawings in them and used them to argue for evolution. And I think that's quite inexcusable because at this point. Everybody knows or ought to know that these drawings are inaccurate. They've been called fraudulent by leading scientists like Stephen Jay Gould, and they are not to be used to promote evolution. I guess that message hasn't gotten around yet. Um, As for peppered moths, so I would say that it's possible that some students still are learning Heckel's embryos. But by and large, and I would credit the work of Jonathan Wells for this, frankly, um, by and large, they have been removed from textbooks. You still, though, will see drawings sometimes. That overstate the degree of similarity. They're just not Heckel's drawings. Um, mm-hmm. As for the peppered moth, um, I would say in the last 20 years, there are still some textbooks that use them. Um, but again, they're not, they're, they're becoming less and less common. Um, if you read Jonathan Wells' 2017 book, Zombie Science, he kind of goes does a retrospective on these icons of evolution, these, these common lines of evidence that are used to promote evolution. And he updates them with some new icons. So some of the new icons that are inaccurate that we see in textbooks would be junk DNA or the whale evolution series, that um, even though we have these fossils, there's a lot of problems with the arguments that they demonstrate common ancestry or that, or that Darwinian uh, mechanisms can explain this evolutionary pathway. So we're seeing new icons in the textbooks today, although, uh, and this is good news, that uh, peppered moths and Heckel's embryos are beginning to disappear. And again, I would credit ID theorists for, for that. And so... I, I'd love to see them get that credit at least.
0: Yeah, it's great. And thank you so much for your time, Casey. It's been so much fun to talk about intelligent design and all these big issues. Um, is there anything that you want to share, last thoughts that you want to get out there before we start to wrap things up here?
1: Sure. Just if you want to follow this issue, go to Discovery Institute's news site. That's evolutionnews.org. We also have a podcast, I Do the Future, which is a great way to keep up on the issue. So uh, check out those websites and uh, appreciate the the time to be on your show, Zach. Thanks for what you're doing.
0: Yeah, it's been so much fun, Casey, and I appreciate your time and br- really breaking down these issues. Um, and I encourage everyone to go check out the uh, Discovery Institute and the podcast, and it's a good podcast and everything going on there. Um, and if you're new to hearing apologetics, as always, I encourage you to subscribe uh, to our YouTube channel and our podcast. And if you leave a like or review on your way out, I uh, really appreciate that. And if you enjoy the show, you can support us on patreon.com, slash so as hearing apologetics. Uh, you support me a lot. you can support for as little as a dollar a month, or just click the join bet- bet button if you will see on YouTube on your way out. But Casey, thank you so much for your time. It's been so much fun.
1: Thanks a lot, Zach. I appreciate that you're a fast talker. Uh, you get a lot of information out. Thanks a lot.
0: <laughs> I try my best because there's so much we can cover here. But thank you're you right. everyone who tuned in. Moshe, Kirati, Susan, uh, Kelby, everyone else. And have a good one and God bless.